And this morning, uh, as you see from the title, this morning is a little bit of a, a somber subject that we'll be dealing with today, but a much needed topic and a much needed subject as we look at God's justice in the light of wickedness, true, real wickedness that exists in our world. During the gold rush era, miners were often lowered down into mine shafts in baskets, and then they would set dynamite in that mine shaft and then quickly be pulled up before the explosives went off. Most people think that this imagery is actually where we get our phrase, this place is going to hell in a handbasket. Now, I don't know about you, but I know in my mind and in my heart and sometimes in my mouth, that phrase has appeared. That this place or this world or these people are going to hell in a handbasket. And in some ways, that's actually true. And what we're going to see this morning is that that is true. Before we read our text, I wanted to just kind of hit you with the reality of some of the things that are going on in our world today. Daily, people are losing their jobs because of injustice in the workplace. Sometimes this is because of uh, leaders in the workplace, authorities in the workplace who show favor to one family member over another or show favor to someone who looks like them over another who comes from a similar background as them than another there is injustice that still happens in the workplace i know because i've experienced it firsthand against people who don't look like me i've seen that happen uh, there's also eight hundred and fifty thousand abortions that are performed every year in our country 11,000 a year in South Carolina which averages out to 30 every day 30 abortions every day there are 464,000 victims of rape or sexual assault every year in our country 40,000 people die from gunshot wounds in 2017 some schools in the U.S. are now separating people and actually segregating people based on race in order to indoctrinate them with the principles of critical race theory. There is real genocide happening throughout our world in countries like Sudan and South Sudan, Central Africa, Iraq, Syria, North Korea, and China against Christians, against people who are ethnically different from those in authority, and against Muslims and other religious affiliation. Real genocide, real mass murder happening today. Every year, 4,500 Christians are killed because of their faith, let alone the ones who are being tortured because of their faith. That's 13 per day on average being killed because of their faith. Thousands of businesses are closing or are on the threat of closing because they can't hire workers, and yet people are still being given money for not working. Every year, 400,000 kids are waiting to be put into foster care or adopted, 4,500 of them in the state of South Carolina. Um, you see the over-sexualization of adver advertisements on 
main uh, mainstream media and TV commercials in the middle of the day when kids are watching, uh, really indoctrinating uh, kids with the, the, the sexual agenda of our world. I can give you examples of scrolling through Facebook and other things where, uh, where kids are specifically being targeted with this type of indoctrination. Students and kids. There are also pastors and churches who are guilty of spiritual abuse and other forms of abuse or hiding abuse. And then I know some of the situations that maybe are uh, angering people the most right now are issues with sexuality and gender and how that agenda is being pushed on people. A couple of situations specifically. There is a, a, a daughter, a girl in Ohio, who was actually removed from her parents' custody and her parents lost custody because they did not support her desire to become a male. This actually happened in Ohio. There are kids who, as young as eight or nine, are be being given hormone and puberty blockers because of a feeling that they might be a different gender. Being diagnosed and given hormone blockers at the age of eight or nine years old. So all of these situations, whether you're whatever side you're on politically, all of these situations or some of these situations should rightly cause some discomfort and even anger inside of our hearts. Now, before we get into our text, what we're going to see this morning is those feelings, if they come from an appropriate attitude and heart of faith and, and justice and what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is evil, those can come, those feelings of anger and, and, and sadness and distraught can come from a good place. And what we're going to see is, as David writes the psalm today, that seems to be the situation he's in. What, what is God going to do? When is he going to execute his justice on the wicked? And so when we think about situations like this, we think about prayers in the Bible that come up. Prayers like, how long, O Lord, will you forget us forever? Have mercy on us, O God, according to your steadfast love. Or come, Lord Jesus, come. You see, all of these prayers taken right out of Scripture are appropriate as we think about the reality of the world that we live in today, a world that is broken by sin and being taken over by evil and wickedness, or what seems to be being taken over by evil and wickedness. Now, before I even get into our text this morning, I just want to be able to tell you, God is in control. Amen. He really is sovereign. He really is good. And what we're going to see from our song this morning is that because... God is God, and because he is a just God, he will, the wicked will receive justice, and the righteous will have joy for, forever. That's what we're going to see from our text this morning. So Psalm 58, what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to read through this as we go, just kind of walk through. And what I want you to see, we're going to break this down into two points. The first nine verses, I just want you to see the fate of the wicked. 
What is the reality? Where, where are the wicked heading when, if they don't repent and turn to Christ? And then in verses 10 through 11, we'll look at the joy of the righteous. Now, something you'll see if you go throughout the, the Psalms specifically, and this actually is set up right at the beginning of the Psalms in Psalm 1, you have this distinction between the wicked and the righteous. And another way we could understand that is when we talk about Christians and non-Christians, or believers and unbelievers. And what we are not saying is that Christians are really good people who have it all together, who are way better than those non-Christians. But what we're saying is those who are without faith and outside of Christ are dead in sin, as the Bible describes, and they are slaves to their evil and wickedness. And all of us, as we're going to see, all of us are in that state at some point in our life. When we are born, the Bible says we're born into sin, that we are slaves to sin. And Ephesians 2 actually says we were children of wrath, objects of God's wrath, when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. So the wicked are all of us at some point in our life. We're born into wickedness. But the righteous are those who are trusting in the gospel, in Christ, to be saved, not according to anything that we've done, which we read about in our catechism, but because of his mercy and forgiveness and grace. So the righteous, we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so the Bible calls us righteous because we're trusting in God's righteousness. But those who are outside of Christ, the Bible calls the wicked. Those who are not trusting in Christ, therefore, they're lost and broken and enslaved to their sin. And what that should do for us all is cause us to have mercy. Not self-righteousness, but mercy. Because if it wasn't for the grace of God, we would be in the same situation. Are you with me? Amen. So even before we get into our psalm, we need that's a long introduction. But we need to have the appropriate mentality as we go on. Yes, wickedness and evil exist, and that should anger us and sadden us and cause us to be distressed even at points. But we can't forget that God's mercy is for sinners, which we are. And without his mercy, we would be in the same boat. Okay, so now Psalm 58. Let me just walk through that with you. First two verses says this. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? And I just want to make a note there. That word is somewhat hard to translate, and I don't love, I, I, generally I like the ESV translation, but I don't love that how they translate this, because that word can also mean mighty lords, or masters, or leaders, or um, things like bosses. And so really what this is getting at is all of those in authority, do you decree what is right? Do you judge the man uprightly? Verse 2, no, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on the earth. And so David opens his psalms by really directing it towards those in authority who, who are pushing evil agendas. Um, you know, he's saying you plan wrong, you plan violence, you set an agenda of evil and you Legislated. You are putting these things into government and into the, the formulation of a corporation that are 
bad principles that are, that are done with an evil intent. And so he's really calling out leaders, sinful leaders, who are pushing an evil or a wicked agenda. Now look at verses 3 through 5. It says this. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom, like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ears so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or the cunning enchanter. So what this is dealing with here, what this is saying is that the wicked are estranged from the womb. And, and here's really where we get to the doctrine that we call total depravity. So stay with me for a second here. What we believe is that every human being is born into sin. That no one is good, as Romans 3 tells us and as our psalm told us a few weeks ago. No one is good. No one is righteous. We're all born in sin. We're all born with evil in our hearts. That Genesis chapter 6 actually says that every inclination of our heart is only evil all the time. And so we, when we are born, are born in that same state. That's what this is saying. It's saying the wicked are estranged from birth. So when you read that, that shouldn't automatically make your mind go, yeah, those wicked people are estranged from birth. What should happen in your heart is, that, that's me. That's also me. I was estranged from birth. And that's exactly what Ephesians 2 says. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. Paul in Titus chapter 3 says, we too were haters of God, hating others and hating one another. Now this is Paul, who was a Pharisee of all Pharisees, and he says, I was evil. We would have looked at Paul's life before he came to know Christ and thought he was a religious person who, was, who, who tried to follow all the law the best he could, but he says, I was evil. And so when it says the wicked are estranged from birth, we need to be able to identify with that personally. Not just put that on other people and say that's defining other people, but really to say that's defining me. And then he uses this, uh, this, this example of a snake. He says they are like snakes with venom in their mouth. They, uh, they do not hear the voice of the charmers. And so what he's describing is a snake that can't be charmed. So what, what often they would do is they would take some sort of flute or something, a horn, you've probably seen this, where they play this horn and they've got a cobra that's up there, you know, dancing around. Well, this was actually a tool that was used to bring cobras and to bring serpents out of their dens. They would charm the snake and draw the snake out that was causing them danger in order to kill it, cut the head off, break its teeth. And so, which we're going to see in a second, that, that, that imagery of breaking their teeth. And, but this is saying they're so lost in their wickedness that they can't even be charmed out. And you can kind of imagine this. People who are pushing a certain agenda, who believe certain things, who no matter what approach you take to try to talk to them, to try to you know, speak some sense into them, to hear them out and have a loving, gentle dialogue, they're not hearing it. I'm sure you've seen this. Maybe you've experienced this. 
And that's what David is saying is they're so lost in their wickedness that they won't even hear you out. Their ears are plugged. They can't be charmed. Romans 1 actually gives us a picture of this. That, that at, one, at some point when someone is so uh, down the path of waywardness, at some point God just lets them go. And says so that that's really the, the ultimate judgment. Is God saying, okay, if that's the way you want it, that's the way you'll have it. And he lets them on and lets them go in their sin. And so, that's what we see David really speaking to here. Verse 6. O God, break their teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. This is really strong language here. This is some strong imagery that David's using. First, he's carrying on that imagery of the snake when he says, break their teeth in their mouth. And then he says about the lion, Tear out their fangs. He says, let them vanish. Let them disappear. Let their arrows be blunted. And all these things, what he's saying is, Lord, take away their power. Take away their weapons. And so I, I know, probably most of us in this room, when we watch things or hear about things that are going on in our world, maybe that thought has come to your mind. Lord, just take their power away from them. They don't need to be in this position. And, and I think that's really what David is getting at, that we can actually pray. We First we pray, which we'll talk about, we pray that people will repent, that they will see the brokenness and the wickedness of their own hearts and of their sin and of whatever agenda they're pushing. But if that does not seem to be the case, if their ears are plugged up and if they're not going to change their ways, it is right to say, Lord, remove them. Remove their power. Take away their weapons. Don't let them exercise this authority anymore. I think that's what this is saying as well, what David is getting at. And then he uses a couple of other uh, illustrations. He says, like a snail that dissolves into its slime, that just disappears into its slime, and like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Now, Charles Spurgeon, in his commentary on this psalm, actually made a really insightful comment on this part of this verse. When, I, when we read that, it, we really don't want to dwell on that thought very much. Now, I've, I've known people who have had miscarriages, who have had stillborn children who were born and, and with no life, and that is a very sad thing. It's a heartbreaking thing. It's a terrible thing. And what is our response to people who have suffered that? It should be sadness and pity. And if we put this in that light, what David is saying is, Lord, these people who, who are not turning from their sins, who are not trusting in you, they will be like the stillborn child who never sees the light of day. Charles Spurgeon, when he was talking about this, said, those who never repent... And turn to Christ for the forgiveness of sins are like spiritual miscarriages. One day, 
We will pity them. We will be saddened because they never got to see the light of Christ. And that's really what should happen in our hearts when we think of people not coming to saving faith in Jesus. When we think about the fate of the wicked, what should happen in our hearts here and now is pity and sadness and mercy for them. Really praying for those who still have, a, have time to repent and come to Christ. It's a sad state when people don't turn away from their sins and turn to Christ. And then he uses another image of, of the thorns under the pot. He said, let the pot uh, not even feel the heat of the thorns. Now, the, the image here, again, if you've ever been camping or if you've ever tried to start a fire outside, what do you have to do? you got to get the small twigs and the small dry pieces first, right? And you got to make sort of a pile, whatever your strategy is, TP or whatever. you got to make a pile of those small twigs that are easy to catch fire. And then when you can get those started, then you can put the bigger ones on in order to build that fire. Well, what, uh, what David is saying here is don't even let the pot, you know, imagine they're trying to cook something outside and they're there by the campfire. They've got the small twigs set. It says, don't even let the pot feel the heat of the small thorns, the twigs. But he uses this picture of the wind that comes. He says, instead, let, let the wind sweep them away. Okay. So this has happened to me before. And it's really frustrating to be trying to start a fire and then have the wind, you know, blow it out, and then you're like, well, that was all the small toys we could find. It's really frustrating. And so Paul, what, what, what David, I keep saying Paul, what David is saying is, frustrate them in their plans. All of the work that they're putting into this evil agenda, Lord, let it be worthless. Let them see the fruit of their labors as nothing, and take them away quickly. Now, all of this, let's just pause and try to apply this for a second. All of this really is a reality check. The first reality check is, if you have never come to Christ for saving faith, this describes you. You are in that state of wickedness, and the reality is that God is the judge, and he is a just judge. We're going to look at some passages in a second, but what this means is, if God is the judge, then you don't have to be. You don't have to be the judge. He actually says, vengeance is mine. We are called to love our enemies and not to judge those, but to pray for them and, and to love them. And so what this means is you don't have to be the judge of people and you don't have to set everything straight. It doesn't mean you can't look at the world and think this, this world is, is, is in trouble. People are in trouble. And then you pray for God to intercede, but you don't have to fix it. You don't have to do a long post on Facebook to tote your self-righteousness. You don't have to talk amongst your friends about everything else that is going on in the world and, and make yourself feel a little bit better about yourself because you're not the judge. God is, and he is just, and he will make everything right. What this also means is... Uh, when we hear about evil, it is appropriate to respond with sadness and even with anger because God responds with sadness and with anger towards sin as well. You see, if none of us cared about um, children, 
then it wouldn't upset us if people were trying to indoctrinate them with sinful agendas. But because we care for children, it upsets us, and it should upset us. You see, you can't actually have love without having justice wrapped up in there. And because God is the most loving being in all of, of, of the world, he's also the most just being in all of the world. Which means not only does he love sinners, but he hates sin, and he will execute justice in the end because he is a loving God. Those who suffer oppression and persecution know this the most. They don't want a God who's, who's frilly with sin, who is uh, discompassionate, who doesn't care, but who says, oh, I just love you all, and, and no matter how bad you are, I'll accept you, because people who are being oppressed and tortured and who really are facing real suffering they need a God of justice. And they have a God of justice. And that's what this psalm is saying, that God is just. And in the end, he will execute justice. So, let's go ahead to verse 10 and 11. Let's, let's move to our second. The second thing we see is the joy of the righteous. Verse 10 says this, The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. And so what this is saying is that for those who are in Christ, again, we, we understand now that we're in the New Testament time, the only ones who are righteous are those who are righteous by faith in Jesus Christ because of what he has done for us on the cross. So what we believe is that Jesus, who was God, who is God, took on flesh. He became a human being, and while on earth, he lived a life of sinless perfection. And while he was on earth, he loved people perfectly. He also, while he was on earth, was the person who taught about hell more than anyone else. And so God, so Jesus, being on earth, perfect without sin, perfectly loving, also had perfect theology. And this Jesus suffered... Because he believed the truth about God. He believed the truth of God's word. And ultimately, he was nailed to the cross because of his beliefs. And because he claimed to be God in the flesh, which he was. And so people nailed him, the Bible says. He was put on the cross by the hands of sinful men. He was nailed to the cross. But the Bible also says he wasn't a victim. He actually went there willingly. He wasn't... He wasn't he was a victim in some ways, but he went willingly to the cross. He went there for you and for me. Because we are the wicked without Christ. And anyone who believes in him, the Bible says when he was nailed to the cross, all of our sins and wickedness were nailed to the cross. So that through faith in Jesus, we can be forgiven our sins and we can be declared righteous. That's what justification is. Being declared righteous. And so for those who are in Christ, we are the righteous ones. And that's good news. And what the psalm says is that the righteous will rejoice when they see his vengeance. Now, Revelation actually gives us several pictures of this, but the one I wanted to read from you is Revelation 19. 
we're going to sing a song in a second based on Revelation 19.1. But Revelation 19 says this, verses 1 through 5. It says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are just and true. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So what this passage is saying is that our praise in heaven one day will actually be based on God's vengeance and justice towards wickedness, including wicked people who have never repented. Now here on earth, I don't think that's our role, because Jesus has taught us to pray for our enemies, to love our enemies, to forgive those who persecute you, to turn the cheek against those who would dishonor us. And so while we are here on earth, and before Jesus comes back, our response to those who are outside of Christ is mercy. And even pity. Pitying them because they don't know the truth of God's word. Pitying them because they haven't come to the reality of the, the saving grace of Jesus for real sinners. And so the Bible describes us also as his enemies. Tim Keller, I was listening to a sermon of his this past week about loving your enemies, and he said, if you've never seen yourself as an enemy of God, then it means you're probably not a Christian. It's pretty strong words. And if you've grown up in a religious kind of background, you may never have realized that when the Bible says we were once enemies of God, but while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us, that really is describing you. You are or you were the enemy of God before you came to save faith in Jesus Christ, before you repent of your sins and trust in him. But if you have done that, then the Bible says you're righteous. Not because of anything that you've done, but because of the grace and the forgiveness and the cleansing blood of Jesus. And if that describes you, then you will rejoice one day at the justice of God, at witnessing the vengeance of God on evil and on sin. And so, let me just try to, to wrap this up with a few things. Um, I'm going to talk about hell, and then I'm going to talk about heaven. Because that's the two, the two pictures we see here. So first of all, what do, what do we know about hell? Well, what we know about hell from the Bible is several things. We know that it will be a place of torment forever. We know it will be a place where there will be Weeping and gnashing of teeth. We know that it's described as a burning fire and the darkest of dark places. We know it's where not only unbelievers and sinners will suffer, but the devil and his own demons will suffer. We know that people will be there who didn't expect to be there, and that once they're there, they will know why they're there, and they will be terrified. We know that people who are there wish someone would warn their family before they come there themselves, because they can't. We know the Bible seems to say more will be in hell than will be in heaven. This is what some call remnant theology, that only a few will be saved. 
We know that the Bible teaches about hell more than it actually teaches about heaven. And it has more descriptions of hell that Jesus himself described it. We know that we have to believe in hell if we're going to believe in heaven because the Bible teaches about it. Even though some choose to believe in heaven and not hell, because these things are both laid out in the scriptures, you can't actually do that. We know that Jesus taught about hell, as we've said earlier, more than anyone else in the Bible because he is loving and because he is just and because he is merciful. And we know those who are in heaven are only there by grace through faith in Jesus, and we will praise him even more because he saved us from hell. And we know that God will receive glory from people and angels forever because of his holiness, justice, and mercy, which without hell we would not know the fullness of. So we believe in hell here at this church. Not a lot of people want to talk about that anymore. Some people talk about it, but they do it with an attitude of self-righteousness and, and with an attitude that um, they don't deserve it. The reality is we all deserve this. We all deserve hell. The only reason we're not there or not going there is because of God's mercy. If you believe in Jesus, you are saved from that. And so the Lord describes, the Bible describes heaven as a place with no suffering, with no sadness, with no weeping, with no anger, with only joy. And so if that's where you want to be, come to Jesus. And, and if you know Jesus and if you're trusting in him, what that means is that when you see wickedness in our world and when you see people who are pushing an agenda of wickedness, especially leaders that this psalm seems to deal with. What this means is you respond with gentleness and with mercy and with pity. And if you have someone that never seems to change their ways or to even want to hear people who are different in, in their beliefs, then what you do is you say God's in control and he's sovereign and he is just and he will punish sins for what it deserves. I'm so thankful that he punished Jesus for me so that I don't have to face that myself. If you really believe that you are in the same boat as all those who are wicked, then your only appropriate response would be mercy towards fellow sinners. If it's anything else, there's probably something in your heart that we need to repent of, including myself. And so let's pray that God would give us mercy for sinners in the same way he has given it to us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your love for sinners. And, and this is a reality check. For those who... Don't know Christ is a reality check for the world we live in. It's a reality check. And for some of us who have family and friends who don't know Jesus, it's a reality check. Lord, help us to, to face this reality with mercy, with sadness, um, with humility, knowing that we don't deserve your grace. We don't deserve your love or your mercy. That's why they are grace and love and mercy. Lord, we pray that uh, 
And we pray that you, the God of justice, uh, would come, would come back. But as you wait, we know that your patience and your kindness is meant to lead people to repentance. So we pray that we would repent of any self-righteousness in our own hearts, and that we would pray for others to repent and come to Christ as well, so that they might escape the fires of hell that you have for those who 